0: Hello everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, one of the hosts of the channel. Uh, today we'll be talking to Chuck Walker about his new book, The Tupac Amaru Rebellion. Uh, Chuck Walker, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I was wondering if you could just sort of start off with a, a general sense about your own uh, intellectual and academic interests, and then maybe get into the genesis of this project.
1: Absolutely. Well, again,
0: thanks for having me.
1: Uh, the book, it's been a long it's been a long course for this book. It was actually started when uh, my wife and I lived in Cusco for three years in the late '80s. I was doing a dissertation on post, actually post-independence caudillos in Cusco, and I started moving back into the late colonial era. And the dissertation started in the wake of the Rebellion. And so I finished the dissertation. People said that's crazy. You've got to have something on it in the book. It's too important. So my first, my dissertation dash first first book, Smoldering Ashes has an introductory chapter about Tupac Amaru, and it it was a lot of fun to do. I really enjoyed it. A lot of the primary sources are published, and a few people said, oh, you should write a book about that, write just on Tupac Amaru. It had been used quite a bit, and I I sort of held off saying, nah, I, I don't want to do a sort of history light. I just don't want to do a summary of what's out there, and then about a decade later, at least, I was in Spain doing work on another book on Lima and the earthquake, and as historians do, I... The, you know, my the free afternoons or waiting for a leaco, I started reading more and I found a lot of new material. So I convinced myself that there would be something new and you also need a synthesis. There were so many good focused books on specific regions, on topics, on a very small time period, things that we needed an overview. So that's that's basically how I convinced myself to do it.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you did a good job, I think, early in the book of sketching out that historiography and, and sort of the fact that there are some obvious works on it, but it, it hasn't had much of a refresh lately, especially. Um, and I wonder, maybe we could just start off in terms of what the area is like. And one of the big issues is that you have... A big kind of change with the Bourbon reforms in the 18th century, which I think is an important part of why there's some tension that eventually leads to the rebellion. So, um, could you sort of sketch out the social divisions within the Viceroyalty of Peru and then uh, sort of what the Bourbon reforms do to to perhaps create some social tension?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When the Bourbons sought to clarify racial lines. Peru is a very starkly divided uh, country, although the divisions were not as clear as we, as historians often think they are. But between, you know, coastal, European-looking Lima and and indigenous and Andean, um, the, the Andes, center particularly in the old Inca capital, Cusco. And so one of the things, one of the key facets of the bourbon reforms, we've known this for, for generations, is that they needed to save their empire or their world place and began to increase taxes. So one of the elements is you, be, you get more and more fiscal pre- pressure of indigenous people. There's also an effort against the caciques, or the coracas, these are the ethnic intermediaries, and Tupacamaru is one of these, though in in, in Spanish they use the term hinge, between the local communities, indigenous communities, and the the state. So there's this growing pressure, there's also growing pressure on the church, there are some uh, prominent priests who support the rebellion. So you get, this is the context more than the causes. One of the debates by historians is, was it just simply a reaction to the reform's And very good scholars, well ahead of me, Alberto Flores Galindo and Scarlett O'Fayland, just to name a couple, uh, were very clear about this context, but not causes. But certainly it is the context. Growing growing taxes on indigenous people and less and less autonomy, the sort of pact that indigenous communities had with the the state from the late 16th century, where they were given quite a great deal of autonomy, was being chipped away at the 18th century.
0: And how integrated were a lot of the indigenous people uh, in that area? So you have a big contrast between Lima and Cusco, uh, which have very different uh, uh, social demographics. But, but how would you characterize the indigenous in terms of the amount of integration they have in the Spanish?
1: It's, it's a great question. It's not an easy one because it, it's, it's neither one side or the other. In a sense, they're very integrated in that the Catholic Church had a great presence uh, in, in indigenous people close to closer to Cusco. Their primary language was still Quechua, the Inca language, which is still today the most spoken indigenous language in the Americas. Um, they participate in the market. They had to because of the labor tax and the fiscal tax, the, the head tax. Um, but they also preserve their own customs. They vary in many ways, as tourists are shown today in traditional towns. They lived in many ways like they had during the Inca Empire. But I think we often exaggerate or set up this system. They're either assimilated or not. And many of them felt like Tupac Amaru, was bilingual if not trilingual his latin was very good besides his in spanish felt that he moved between two worlds generally the farther we, the way you get from the cities the farther away you get from the commercial circuits less assimilation
0: and uh, obviously, Tupac Amaru is, is sort of the central character, uh, at least in the first three quarters of the book, uh, along with his wife, Micaelia, uh, who, who you, you sort of rightly, I think, point out is, is very important just in terms of logistics of how this rebellion gets prosecuted. So can you say a little bit more about his and her biographies and, and how it fits into this rebellion?
1: Absolutely. Both of them were fascinating figures. It was really fun to, to focus on them and write about them. Uh, Tupac Amaru is, as I mentioned, a Curaca, an ethnic um representative of his community, inherited this from his father, he claimed, probably rightly so, links to, with, to royal Inca blood, that is the people who ruled the Incas from the city of Cusco, that's why he added the name uh, Tupac Amaru, is, is, he was baptized José Gabriel Condorcanqui, and he was a merchant, this became very important, or a muleteer, because he plied the trade, or he, he worked from Cusco to Potosí, and as we learn centuries later with Pancho Villa, muleteers are often rebellious. They have great contacts at night. They sit around the fire and hear about increased taxes or an SOB who is, you know, doing bad things or these these type of things. So he had the contacts throughout the area. He'd also spent time in Lima. He had uh, several lawsuits over um uh, Marcus a Marcus whether he belonged to him or someone else, this, in the wor- words of Miquela Vasquez, opened his eyes. He learned about colonial Peru. He enjoyed his stay in Lima, but also learned a great deal. And his lawsuits failed. It's also easy to point out a couple years of the rebellion, he tried the legal route and that failed. Uh, Miquela has been written about a great deal. We have less on her in part because her paper, the documents about her, were burnt after the rebellion. Um, in fact, we don't even know what she looked like. We have a, we have a very good description of Tupac Amaru, Miquela Bastidas. Some of the documents hint that she was part Afri- African or African-American. Others say no uh, or, or, or don't imply that. But she had, me- she had married Tupac Amaru. She was in the same small town. Um, one of the questions is, could she read or write? I, I think she couldn't, but she certainly was a very good communicator. She had scribes do this. And she has; she's perhaps best known in the historiography because there's a series of letters with it too, which is lovely. It's very affectionate. She chides him for staying too long in the South in the first attacks when he goes to Puno. He reiterates his love, and it's very, very affectionate. And I think some historians have fallen into casting her as sort of the head pecking wife. And what I found, and certainly other military historians have underlined this as well. But I really try to flush it out is her role militarily she's very good at logistics and one of the basic things i learned reading rereading a lot of military history is this is central strategy is one thing logistics making sure your troops are fed have adequate water wood in the case of the andes enough coca to chew uh liquor was very important and she was brilliant at this in part because of her role in her husband's business he was a merchant muleteer and she stayed at home and she was the one who paid the bills Got the credit, what is necessary, lent to certain people. So she proved to be very, very valuable in the uprising.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's get into the the actual uprising itself, because uh, I kind of want to trace where it goes, and that's and, uh, obviously the, the major thrust of the book. So um, what would you point to as saying sort of the, the the central issues that actually galvanized? native people and some uh, Spanish Creoles as well to join this rebellion. Yeah.
1: Tupac Amaro and Michele from the start want a very broad multi-ethnic uh, movement. They do not want a, just an indigenous uprising, a caste war, if you will. And they try to uh, recruit slaves, uh, other free slaves, Afro Peruvians. They try to get mestizos, even Creoles, that is people of European descent, but not born in Spain. So they cast it as anti-Spanish. The initial Claims, uh, complaints, etc., are about abusive hacienda owners, about Spanish authorities who charge too much, in some cases priests who uh, are immoral with, with, with young women, these sort of things. The initial attacks are against haciendas, the, the estates, and above all, the textile mills, the obrajes, which were absolutely hated because they were prisons as well. And even if you weren't in prison there, the the work was prison-like, but in each of these, there were dozens of Indians who had been punished for something, forced to work in terrible conditions. So that's how the initial uprising, that's what we see, the attacks on the haciendas, the estates in a very anti-Spanish, not anti-Creole, not anti-Mestizo, and anti-Spanish discourse.
0: And and how did it, how do you think it sort of spread to the the people that end up joining the rebellion? And and one of the things I was kind of thinking about as I read through is, is Tupac Amaru obviously has a great knowledge of of Incan history. And he does a great job of spinning this long history and this knowledge of Incan history. And that really tends to get people uh, worked up or at least uh, uh, adherence to his ideas. So. How does this kind of spread out from a, maybe a localized uprising? Yeah, to I more? mean, a
1: lot of it's personal. He is out on, the, out on horseback. He and his you know, inner circle, they're going town to town. They're calling, they're bringing everyone out. They are, usually the Spanish have fled. The, certainly the authorities, the Corregidores are, are usually, in almost all cases, to their great fortune escape just ahead of him. They have a cabildo abierto, if you will, and they expo- express their dismay at Spain. And curiously, Tupac says that he's doing it in the name of the king. And whether this was just a posture or a fate to gain some time or not, I, it's debated. I, I have my opinion in the book. And also, but stresses his Inca roots, that this is the return of the Incas, they will have Inca justice, these, these forms of things. But it's oral. It's going out in these areas. He was very mobile, getting out, um, scaring, petrifying the Spanish, and then organizing people and having them join the movement. So it really snowballed, to use the, the common metaphor.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you're trying to add in the historiography is the church, that the church is really important in this whole story. Uh, And so he's not anti-church at all. I mean, he's he's very much uh, positions himself as a loyal adherent to the Catholic faith. Uh, And that seems to be something that I think a lot of historians, at least the way that you you portray it, is not a central part of the story. And so what kind of relationship does the church have to this rebellion? And and are there church supporters that actually join it?
1: Yeah, no, this is very important. It's something that I think I, I do think is a contribution um, there are members, his local priests support him, and they are tried in the end as rebels, although they, they sort of get off the hook for being that. But, um, and I, so there's often a sort of vague uh, interpretation, the church supported the rebellion or a split. What I found is that the fascinating bishop of Cusco, a man named Moscoso Peralta, was absolutely central in the defeat of Tupacomaru. He, what he did is, from, from Cusco, is he did two measures that were uh, very important. First, he excommunicated Tupac Amaru, said, you're not a member of the church. And this horrified Tupac Amaro and Bastias. They were both devout. They had priests with them. They always said mass for the dead, etc. And they said, you can't do this. We're good Catholics, and you can't do that because I'm indigenous. You can't excommun- excommunicate an um, in Indian. Well, that was the middle of a warfare. There was no grounds to question this. And this worked to divide his troops, and, and for many indigenous people, they saw him as a heretic. He was outside the Catholic Church, so it weakened his base. So he also, um, uh, Moscosa the, the bishop, forced his priest to stay in the what we would call the red zone, the area south of Cusco, between Cusco and Lake Titicaca, what is today the border of Bolivia, and told his priests, stay there. He's not going to touch you. And this was true. Tubacamadu absolutely would not allow his troops to touch a priest, to ransack a church. They debated about church property. He tried to protect it. And so this, this, um, these groups were there to animate Spanish, to allow people to, to become neutral. These, these priests who stayed behind actually had re- processions. And the so Tupac Amado is absolutely befuddled by this, says, I can't be violent against them. But w- with them protesting against me, our rebellion is going to get nowhere or it's going to stagnate. This is, I think, one of the key um, reasons why it failed. The, iron, the incredible irony is Moscoso and Peralta's ultimately tried for being too sympathetic to the priests, ha, has a decade-long trial, ends up in Madrid pleading his case. The extreme hardliners say, no, he was too soft, he's a Creole, he's too close to them. And I argue that, again, it was the opposite. Thanks to his measures, this was key to the defeat of the rebellion. Mm-hmm.
0: But one of the things is that early on you showed that the, the rebels really uh, are pretty successful early on, and it's a, a real struggle for the Spanish state to put it down. And one of the most important factors, it seems, or it's at least part of the factors, is the altitude. And uh, I really like the way that you you sketched out the the, the geography. And growing up in Colorado and, and trying and failing many times right. to uh, climb 14,000-foot peaks, I was very sympathetic to the Spanish having to hike through these extremely high altitudes. And And so is that actually a central part of the story is the altitude and the geography important? Yeah,
1: I mean, Tupacomaro, Miquela, and then the second phase brilliantly understood guerrilla warfare. I mean, they they, they knew that the Spanish troops, once they arrived from Lima, were trained to fight in the plains of Europe. I mean, this is a sort of Napoleonic or era war and peace was a sort of image. Huge columns fighting with cavalry and such in giant plains. And the Andes, those, those plains are very narrow. And so what Tupacamara and Micaela did was hit and run, taking advantage of the mountains, using rocks, coming in and out. And the Spanish were horrified by the altitude. I mean, those who came from the coast, and I should be very careful to say when I say Spaniards, most of the troops were afro Peruvians and mulatos, who were in absolute misery, because anyone who's ever done that bus trip, when you get 12, 13, 000, you 13,000, you feel very ill. And they were cold and this. And it also is part of the... the Spanish view, if you will, of the Indians as savages. How could they live out here? It's above our tree line, et cetera. So geography is something that I think we, I think people hadn't paid quite enough attention to.
0: Mm-hmm. What about, uh, because it's not just this one rebellion, you you sort of trace kind of in the second half of the book, the other rebellions that are going on as well, uh, more in what's now modern day Bolivia, kind of the South of the Lake Titicaca area. Um, so are there similar grievances uh, outside of Tupac Amaru's uh, 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 so, and, and how do those, those uh, uh, rival or, or in some ways parallel uprisings kind of connect to the Tupac Amar? No, those
1: are question. great questions. Well, what struck me when I started sort of outlining the book and when I started reading deeply the, the incredible documentation that I found mostly in Seville, in the Archivo de Indias, um, I realized that almost every second, er, every synthesis, including mine and, and Smoldering Ashes, but some other wonderful books in Spanish and English, the ones I read, um, ended. And it's very known in proving history. The start of the rebellion with the death of the Corregidor, who was hanged, uh, um, Arriaga, and then less than a year later, Tupac Amaro and Miquel are and their family are brutally executed in the Plaza de, de Cusco. This is 7, November 1780 to May 1781, but the rebellion went on for two years. So really, half of my book is about that second phase, and what I described earlier about the efforts to protect the church, to not attack Creoles, mestizos go by the wayside. And I think it's because these are uh, areas with less mestizos or less intermediaries. I think it's a factor of less assimilated indigenous people. And it's a factor of time. You don't have the rebel leaders, they're they're gone. But you also a year, 18 months of warfare, it just gets bloodier and bloodier on both sides. There are no prisoners taken in battles. Everyone is executed. I mean, often, again, People or people, you, the the bits you would get are people were shot somehow, and usually getting shot, even in the leg in the 18th century, meant death, slow and probably very painful death. So the second phase is really at the center of the book. I argue that this is when the real violence happened. This is when you know all historians historians have used the term or a calculation of 100,000 dead. I went in very cynical, thought that was an incredible exaggeration in light of the pretty low density. But in the end, it's, it'll be impossible because we don't have body counts. Uh, no one ever. It was often, you know, counts like, oh, 400 Indians were executed. But I started doing this sort of tally, and it was 400, 600, 700. It really added up. So much of the mm-hmm. book is about the second phase, where, again, geography and altitude, because this gets higher and higher and higher. Cusco, if you go towards Bolivia, towards La Paz, you're going up and up and up, where it's over 4,000, 4,500 meters above sea level.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it sort of that violence, and, and you really sketch out just how brutal it gets, and the fact that there isn't really this tolerance for, for taking prisoners? Um, is that one of the key reasons why you think the rebellion perhaps spins out of control, or is it just a lack of leadership? Because uh, ultimately, the authorities do a good job, I think, of, of targeting the leaders of these other rebellions. But, but what causes maybe? Well, maybe we should maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Right. You can maybe talk very briefly, if you can, about. What is perhaps the downfall of, of Tupac Amaru, right. and then what's maybe the downfall of those subsequent rebellions, right. which carry on for next year or two afterwards? No, that's great. Tupac Amaru
1: and Miquel Bastidas. I mean, it's it's it's, just, it's sort of perfectly crafted. To, you know, it's it's eight or nine months. Um, he is very slow to take the city of Cusco, and the key moment militarily is the siege of Cusco, the very end of 1780 to early 1781. Um, he surrounds the city, a city of about thirty thousand people, with anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand troops. He has the momentum and he never can take the city. Um, Those sympathetic to Bacamato, which is the vast, vast majority of stereography, says it was in large part he didn't want to go, and the, the Spanish put it the front lines, indigenous people, he didn't want to slaughter 500, 1,000 Indians to come into the city. Um, others have said that it was just the desperation of the city. It fought for its life, it worried that it would be out of food, water, and the Indian indigenous hordes, quote unquote, were attacking. One of the things that I found, it's a minor note, but I, um, is that Tupac Amado's troops, it was the rainy season, they were low on food, and a lot of them were ill. It was, they were pouring rain eight days in a very compressed camp, they were in bad shape. So he doesn't take the city, he moves the south, and it's a very long story. But the Spanish troops arrive from Lima, they have horses, they have much better firearms, and push south and capture him and Miquela with, with quite a bit of luck or extremely bad luck for Tupac Amado and Miquela Bastidas, some treachery, but they're cap- captured in April um, of 1781 and a month later in this very well-known in Peru. It's one of the, probably the most known historical moments um, in all of Peruvian history from the, from the Incas to the conquest of today. They're executed this extremely bloody flat fashion in the Plaza de Armas in Cusco. Uh, the second phase then, and that's where most analysts stop, including my first book. I, I don't want to include myself in the criticism. They stop and say, well, the rebellion went on but for a couple of years, but that's really it. What I found is that the rebellion went on. And this is in the second phase was when they were closest to taking power to, to simplify or to generalize the rebellion led by the son of Michaela and Tupac Amaru, uh, cousin and other distant relative of uh, uh, Miguela, very young, these people are 26, 18, and 18, moved the rebellion south, away from Cusco, towards Lake Titicaca, towards you know the city of Puno, and into a guerrilla war. And these Spanish troops, again, mostly black, mostly poor, uh, uh, limeños who had come up, probably suffering, uh, without a doubt, suffering terribly the climb up to, up to Cusco, but they had been victorious rapidly, they were treated as heroes, and then they thought, well, there's this is a mop-up. This is the what they call the pacification. Well, this is where it got particularly bad for them. They they pushed south, it got higher and higher. May, June, July, you're you're moving into the winter. It's the frost everywhere. Their tents were in bad shape. I'm talking about the Royalists, they were running out of shoes, they didn't have enough food, etc. And the, and the rebels at this point were doing a really a guerrilla war, a term that didn't exist. It didn't exist until really early 19th century in Spain, curiously enough. But attacking uh, on In canyons, attack them at night and running, trying to get a small group out, surrounding them, never confronting them in mass columns because the Spanish had the advantage there. And this is the second phase that I argue they're linking with rebels in, in what became Bolivia and Charticas so or Upper Peru. And, and the Spanish, by late 1781, say, We have pretty much lost control of this massive and very important area, important in part because of mining. That runs between Buenos Aires all the way to Lima. This is when the Spanish think they might lose Southern Peru or Southern Mm -hmm. South America.
0: Mm -hmm. And and let's just talk for a little bit about uh, what the immediate consequences are for the people in the area and especially for the indigenous. And then we can kind of uh, try to put all this into perspective. And and I think you do a good job of, of at the end of the book really showing that this needs to be uh, an important uh, point in the whole history of not just Latin America, but also the kind of Atlantic revolutions that we're talking about in this day and age. Um, so uh, what was sort of the ultimate effect for the indigenous population in particular? I mean, th- there's obviously other people that join this rebellion, right. but you really kind of argue that there's a targeted campaign, a sort of de-Incanization, you call it, uh, uh, after this right. is put down finally. And and is that something that the Spanish had just longed to do and it was part of this new German reform and now they just have the pretext to do it? Or was it maybe just... Uh, uh, well, actually, you argue that they don't have the ability to yeah. do it, but uh, but but what is maybe their their intention in trying right. to well, to so mean, repress the,
1: those people? The Spanish got very lucky in the sense of when the the, the rebels were at their highest, the Spanish, what I call the moderates, uh, offered a sort of ceasefire. The rebels, I mean, again, they're very young; they're eighteen eighteen 26. They knew they were, you know, one lucky musket shot away from death. Said, okay, they accepted the ceasefire. And it's a, it's a complicated story. It's the heart of the second half. And there are abs- they're ultimately betrayed by the Spanish. They're executed in even worse fashion. Tupac youngest son is sent off to Spain. Many people are taken down to chains and end up in Spain. And what you have afterwards, this is sort of the rise of the very much hardliners who say the problem is all indigenous people. They're not Catholics. They look to the Incas. They read the famous García Lazo de la Vega and his royal commentary one of the key works when you were talking about Tupac Amado and his insistent on Inca lineage. And they impose these incredibly draconian um, um, measures, almost an ethnic cleansing, if you will, where suddenly Quechua is banned, all references to Incas. Portraits are burned. All portraits of the rebels to our to our great uh, misfortune. Um, Inca dances are banned. And this is often people stop there and say, well, Spanish won, that's it. And we haven't looked nearly enough at the implications. Um, what I saw re- relatively quickly is these were impossible measures. You're not going to convert people, monolingual Quechua speakers Well, if you're going to force them to only speak Spanish, you need to send out Spanish authorities. You need to have schools. You need priests who can speak the language in exchange. And again, it it, it just didn't work on the ground. Part of this, of course, was resistance by the people themselves. Um, But These are very muted struggles. Um, I I was trying to I mean, I, I found some references to indigenous communities. Five ten years after rebellion, saying, "Well, there are some trouble uh, makers in our community. We don't want to return to that terrible time of the rebellion. So please get out this bad authority or help us." Sort of using it as a, as a very veiled threat. But in general, I like, indigenous people are horrified by the loss. They grieve it. Um, That is the people who supported the rebellion. It's important to measure what, to remember it wasn't 100%. Of course, there were indigenous communities really north of Cusco who supported the royalists from the start for a series of complicated reasons. So it was somewhat muted. And so indigenous people, in a sense, didn't want to talk about it, but fought to maintain their rights, to speak their own language, to negotiate with the state. And the Spanish to impose those really radical measures would have had to invest in a huge amount of money. Um, One of the curious elements that really contrasts with violence and uh, the furies of the French Revolution and other cases, is there wasn't mass revenge killings. I mean, you've had, uh, you've had you know, towns rising up, you've had uh, local authorities, local estate owners run out of town tarred and feathered or humiliated in these ways. They all return, they're living together. I mean, some don't, three, four eight years later, and there's a very tense peace, if you will, but there's not this deep um, violence against indigenous people. I think part of it is the interpretation by the hardliners who just couldn't believe that indigenous people were, were capable of political thought. And they really targeted mestizos, creoles, the middle class. The obsession in the trials is, who helped you in Lima? I.e., you, you all couldn't do it. you kids were speaking, you're from these small little towns. It had to have been someone from Cusco or Lima. And that, in a sense, saved, I think, the indigenous um, population from mass executions and, rec- and such.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you think that it ultimately fed into the sort of independence movements of the 19th century? Um, was it pretty key for Peruvian independence? Uh, was there a tradition of drawing on Tupac Amaru?
1: No, it's curious. There's not much. This has, been a, this has been one of the major debates in Peruvian historiography since the, the rise of the interest in Tupac Amaru. something else we can talk about since the 1960s, as what was his role in the War of Independence? Um it's, it's muted in part. You don't get a lot of reference to Tupac Amaro Park as Spanish repression was successful. People didn't talk about it. They certainly didn't gloat. For many, for indigenous people, it was a near miss. It was a tragic near miss where they felt like they were going to c- control and they didn't. Um, what some authors, very smart authors, have pointed out, it increased the division between the Andes and the coast. It made coastal mestizos and Creoles, the very people to Amaro and Michele wanted to recruit, cautious. They said, we might not like the Spanish. But these people are savages. They're going to cut our heads off. They want to get rid of us, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I do think there's some of that. Um, in general, there wasn't much use of Tupac Amado as a symbol in Peru in the Wars of Independence. Really surprising. Much more so in Argentina, where he was, there was some Inca symbolism. Um, part of this is because there's two phases of the Wars of Independence in Peru. The first phase is based in the south. There is a mass uprising that stretches, based in Cusco, 1814, They just uh, celebrated the bicentennial, that stretches north and south, and curiously has as one of its leaders uh, uh, another uh, kuraka, Kumakawa, who had been one of the leader uh, repressors of Tupacomaro. But this moment is also d- defeated, 1814, 1815, and repressed quite brutally, and after that we get what's called the coastal phase, Bit better known, San Martin, Bolivar, and they slowly win over very royalist, very conservative Peru. So it's, it's, again, to go back to your question itself, he as a symbol, not that important in the Wars of Independence, curiously.
0: Well, I think you got to make a a little bit of reference to this at the end as well of the book that uh, is some of that just because this is a largely indigenous, or or there's, there's so much indigeneity around this rebellion where more of the the independence movements of the 19th century are, you know, mestizos are are the ones that are often at the head of that. Is there kind of this uh, reaction against it because it has such an indigenous so.
1: flavor to it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. There is a wave of anti-indigenous racism. There is a uh, Creoles become more cautious. I, I think I mean, it's we, we don't know that much about this. Curiously, it hasn't been that study when people ask me what's next, what should we study? We need to see the impact. Outside of the area, what happened in these communities themselves 15, 20 years later, it kind of works we have for the French Revolution or even the American Revolution. Local studies, what happened 25 years later, do we really need. But I think all in all, that's that's a correct interpretation.
0: Mm-hmm. What about that wider aspect? Uh, so you mentioned that, that the U.S. War of Independence was not something that was on okay. Tupac radar and that this is perhaps, you know, in some ways very isolated revolution. So why do you think that that is? And, and uh, do you think that by the end of the rebellion, there was maybe more of a global sense within the, the rebels that this was part of a push against colonialism? Or is that kind of imposing our own ideas about what rebellion yeah,
1: is? Yeah, I, I tried like? that really hard. And I really wanted to find that in part because the Spanish were very good at censorship, not in a brutal sense. They, they really filter news. There wasn't, even though Peru had a pretty, Lima particularly had an active press, there wasn't much news about uh, wars of independence in, in the United States and such. And Spain's relations with England are so complicated. In the midst of rebellion, there's a real fear that the English will help the rebels. There are hints that the, the that pirates are to come down and help. This never occurs. The English report on it, I tracked down that. It was a lot, a lot of fun. But they did it as sort of anecdotal curiosity. In Peru, the Indians have Spanish on the run. They love to sort of pour salt in the wounds of anything anti-Spanish. But because the alignments are changing, you know, among Spanish, English and the French in the 1780s so much before the French Revolution and afterwards, you don't get much of a global presence. Um, so it, it really doesn't echo that much. One of the contrasts, I argue, in the book and elsewhere with Haiti, for example, uh, which is, you know, in many ways similar to, is, well, Haiti succeeds, it becomes, it be, they, they take the state. But also Haiti confronted slavery and the sugar trade, which are the pillars of 18th and 19th century or early 19th century slavery. Dupacomato confronted these odd things called the reparto, the head tax, he looked back to the Incas, things that didn't resonate nearly as much. It didn't create the sort of reactionary coalition that Haiti did and it didn't resonate as much. So I, I'm still working on this. I actually have an essay on it about to be to be an Atlantic revolution, do you have to resonate on these terms, I mean, isn't this some sort of form of uh, Eurocentrism? I do think it changed Spanish America greatly, and it affected um, the wars of independence and beyond.
0: Mm-hmm. Is part of the reason why perhaps uh, it, the rebellion is not as well known in scholarly circles. Maybe maybe it is much more so for Peruvian scholars, but but maybe outside the, the confines of that and why this is such an important book is because uh, it is sort of just these different issues that are going on in the rebellion. And, and one of the things that sort of stands out is that there's not – slavery isn't a central pillar of that rebellion. Um, and, and it's part of that just because – and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm backtracking a little bit, but it's part of that just because Lima is – is qu- sort of the antithesis to the Cusco uh metropolitan and Lima is really where there is enslavement in Peru it's really in Lima versus right. Cusco is that part of the reason why perhaps slavery doesn't factor in in the same way Yeah of I mean it's probably?
1: very interesting and I and I sort of explore this a bit in the book uh Tupac Amaru abolishes slavery very quickly and I think I I'm guessing here what I, what I hypothesize in the book is that it was part of his experience in Lima He had seen most of the slavery in Peru is in Lima and on the plantations around there. Very little in the Andes because you had a cheap, exploitable um, source of labor, the the massive numbers of indigenous people. Um, So I think it was symbolic for him. I also think perhaps he figured out that if the rebellion spread and if you could get plantation slaves fleeing, that would really alter um, the proving economy But because it stayed Andy's focus It didn't have that that greater role There was fear of this though That it would spread to the plantations And the city itself
0: mm-hmm. uh, Let's kind of As we start to wind down here uh, Maybe just bring us up to the modern period Because I think a lot of people that see the word Tupac Will think of Tupac Shakur And so there is this revival of, of Tupac Amaru uh, Maybe more in the 19th century And so if you could just sort of tip your hat a little bit to, to how he becomes this new figure in a more uh, 20th century context. I right.
1: Say. Well, he, he'd never really been forgotten. There, there are sort of waves of generations of historians who look at him, um, venerate him. He became slowly a national hero. But it was really in the 1960s um, that he became such an international symbol. You know, the Tupamaros in Uruguay referred to him in part because rebels in Uruguay in the Wars of Independence had been called critically Tupacamados or Tupacomodos. That's That's where the term comes from, Uruguay. Peru has its own guerrilla movement alongside, quite different than the Shining Path that, that uses name. Um, much of this comes from 1968 in the very curious revolutionary military government of Velasco Alvarado in Peru. Um, 1968, when uh, most of the southern cone is either in the military, has military uh, ruling them, Uruguay and Brazil are on the way to extremely bloody right-wing U.S.-supported military regimes, case of Argentina and Chile. Peru has the opposite, is this very progressive, left-leaning um, president who had a very radical agrarian reform. And he, Velasco Avarado, selected Tupac Amado as the symbol of his revolution. very And he actually... Um, Worked with some of Pru's great artists who had all these. I, I wish I probably should have shown had these images to show you. I've got posters such these beautiful sort of pop images of Tupac Amaru the Agrarian Reform of last was a brilliant marketing campaign. I don't mean to sound cynical about it, but Tupac entered the um, international interest, and this is why Tupac Shakur's mom, a, a mother of Black Panther, reading about revolutionaries of color, changed his name to. The, the future rapper, Tubakamado Shakur. And again, I tell undergraduates that they're shocked, but he became a symbol internationally of resistance. He's also quite a presence symbolically or as an icon in Africa. It's very interesting. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. Um, well, uh, you kind of maybe uh, previewed it a little bit, but but are you sort of. Uh, going in a different direction in your next project? Is, is, are you trying to maybe develop out what the legacy of this rebellion is? What What are you working on next?
1: Well, I've got a couple sort of you know, post-book things that bothered me. I couldn't quite get in there a little bit. I, I cut the historiography down brutally. Uh, one of the things is, is, speaking among historians, if you want to write narrative history for a big audience, you have to cut out the historiography. My editor at Harvey University Press was very good about this. She shocked me. I said, this is so fascinating, this school and that. She says, Think about if you're reading about Greece or a country you don't know, if you in a paragraph have 15 names that challenge you, you're going to skip ahead. So I, I would like to write a historiographical essay. I also have an essay coming out in, in a bit about Velasco and the use of uh, Tupac Amado. Um, the other thing I'm working on related to that is this argument at Tupac Amato and the Atlantic Revolution. That's been a lot of fun. It's allowed me to read about Haiti, the new, the great new and old work about the French Revolution, the very interesting work now in the United States, and sort of cast this question, which I don't think I ever can fully answer yes or no. Is it an Atlantic Revolution if it didn't gain a global presence and it didn't win? I mean, again, why is it not a revolution? I always get that question through. The, the media answer is to be a revolution, you got to win. You know, whether mm-hmm. Cuba, Mexico, you have to take the state, et cetera. But does this mean that it should be in this sort of minor category of a regional rebellion? I think there's, there's broader categories. And then after that, I'm, I'm developing a slowly a very different project on 20th century Peru, Violence and the sh- Shining Path, um, mm-hmm. one where these themes we've talked about reverberate quite a, quite a bit.
0: That's terrific. And uh, uh, I have to say that uh, as a narrative history, it it read so well and it was with so many different moving parts and different characters. It was really uh, uh, easy to kind of get a sense of the rebellion. I think you did a great job of casting it and also showing the importance of it beyond just the rebellion itself and how it has these larger reverberations. So uh, I really appreciate you talking to us about the book. And uh, uh, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate
0: it. All right.